listening to The Currency Welcome. I'm your host, Mike Gaston, and I am thrilled, as always, to have you along. Thanks for joining me. My guest today is a specialist. I'm really excited to have this discussion because he is a world-renowned event profit expert. He's an expert in outdoor events, has a lot of direct marketing experience. Today's guest is Eugene Loy, and he's the author of a couple books. He's written The Ultimate Air Show Marketing Machine, The Ultimate Facebook Marketing Machine as well. He's also put out about 600 short articles on event promotion. Eugene has presented his money-making strategies to hundreds of event producers across North America and Europe, and over the last 20 years, He's developed a -a one-of-a-kind direct response marketing guarantee to deliver results. So folks, please join me in welcoming Eugene Lloyd. Eugene, welcome to The Currency. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate you having me here, and hopefully I can live up to the introduction. Well, I think that you're going to. You know, we've had a little bit of, uh, we've had some conversations in the past, and I was just intrigued by, first of all, your personality, your warmth, your intelligence, and uh, character. But then on top of that, you've got this experience in outdoor event marketing and direct marketing that, you know, I I run across a lot of marketers and there's a lot of general practitioners. You bump up against some researchers, but I don't often run up against people that um, have the depth of experience in direct marketing that you do. So I thought, wow, I've got to get you on the show. So I'm thrilled to have you here. There's no pressure (laughs) <laughs> you, uh, I think just your experience, there's so much you have to share. So thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure. Yeah. So let's jump in a little bit. You, um, you have this experience in outdoor events. You do things like air shows, beer fests, and in all kinds of outdoor events. Tell the audience a little bit, like, how did you get into this? I want to get into some of the details a little later on, on your experiences and do's and don'ts, tips and tricks, but How did you find this niche and build a career in it? Well, it was one of those things that goes back 25, 30 years. I was heavily involved in the local Ukrainian-American community. That is my ethnic background. Um, Great family, extended family, all the good stuff that goes along with that. And I was really involved with my church at the time local Ukrainian dancing ensemble. And I distinctly remember my first event was a Ukrainian dinner dance event. And I remember Johnny Be Good. The band was playing Johnny Be Good. And I remember just the energy in the room. Even though I was young, people were having a great time. People were going through. They were dancing. They were doing all of this other stuff. And as a child, I remember that. And then moving forward a little bit, started to get involved with some of the local Ukrainian organizations and the community events, the local Ukrainian festival. Um, They would have bake sales. And I would sit back and I would see everything that was going on. And again, young, learning, trying to kind of discover how the world works. There would be events that nobody showed up to. And then there would be other events that were totally packed. So... As I went through high school and then ended up going to SUNY Brockport for political science and international studies, I still had my marketing detective cap on. But the interesting thing was I was heavily involved in technology, right? Computers. My dad would, if I would break the computer, I would have to go and fix it. 
And I started to bring in the kind of the computer side of the equation, the early days of the internet, became more and more involved with events. And then back, remember the days when uh, cyber squatting was popular? You would buy oh, somebody. Oh, yeah, you grab a domain. Yeah. Sure. Yep. So at the time, I went through and I purchased the domain name for a air show. And this was just before all the cyber squatting legislation went in. I walked in the door as, you know, young snot-nosed kid. I'd been developing websites for a couple of years. I went to the organizer and I said, I've got this domain name. It's a perfect fit for your air show. And basically they sat back and they were good enough to give me my real first opportunity, 1999-2000, to do an air show website. And then since then, the the journey got even more interesting. But that's kind of where everything intersected because it's a live outdoor event. You get to see the energy of everybody uh, when the jets and and the vintage aircraft are are flying over, the patriotism, the love for our country, or if it's an air show in another country of their nation, and taking the technology and kind of bringing it together with a live event experience, I think for me was kind of the catalyst in the early 2000s. So that was your first exposure. As a child, you were exposed to events. You were, it seems like your curiosity and your imagination was peaked with events in general. Then there was this confluence of technology and domain squatting and air shows that kind of got you your entrance. And now fast forward to today, my understanding is you're you're doing events in Europe. You're doing events in the United States. I mean, how many events are you involved in on, in any given year on average? So we have a couple of different levels of events that we support. Uh, we have something called uh, Platinum Client, which is our highest level of service. There's a bit of an ascension that clients go. They try parts and pieces of the system because it's, it's my goal to work with people that the system and our methodology is a, is a really good fit. I don't, you know, I've, I've, I've learned over the years, my goal isn't to try to change somebody's mind. It's to find the clients that are really, really good at saying, hey, that sounds interesting. We're going to try that. Even if we don't agree with it, we'll try it. So at the platinum level, we've got about three high-end event organizers across North America and Europe. That really occupies about 90% of the time on client work. And then on top of that, uh, as you've seen, uh, there's a print newsletter. I've also got an email list of, last time I checked, it's almost 600 event organizers from around the world. There's a subscriber base, a little less than 10 people, something I just launched called the Event Profit Report, um, all the way over to Australia, where I try to distill the things that I've learned, understanding that not everybody can invest uh, the kind of significant investment to be a platinum client or has the time to make that ascension. But I want to try to get as much great information out to those people who are organizing events, especially outdoor events. Well, I think that's pretty smart. I mean, you've got a very specialized area. You know, you can either be a jack of all trades, master of none, or or, or a true master. And I I think your focus over the last 20 years, I would assume, has allowed you to build that that mastery. It's interesting, you know, when we talk about events, I mean, there are, you know, I, there are all kinds of events. There are concerts. I mean, there are indoor events, outdoor events, concerts, air shows, beer fests, uh, you know, music festivals. Rochester are, are 
our uh, hometown has a jazz fest that goes on every year. That's a pretty big deal. But I would imagine there are common things across all these events that, um, y- you know, common common challenges. So when I think of an event, I think of the phrase getting butts in seats. What is the main reason that people are hiring you? Are they bringing you in for the brand recognition? Are they bringing you in to uh, grow revenues? Or is it really about getting butts in seats? What's the main problem you're solving? Well, it's, it's a little bit of both. What we try to do with clients is we try to identify the challenges, fears, frustrations that they have so that we can come in if we have modules of the system that are a good fit. It's almost like a custom a la carte menu. Uh, they're struggling with advanced ticket sales. So we take them down a certain path. They have challenges with profitability. They're spending tens of thousands of dollars on a billboard that they don't know if it's working. So every client's a little bit different, but kind of the mainstay is advanced ticket sales and creating massive demand for an event. Because I think you would agree, if you can create a massive amount of demand and sell a lot of advanced sale tickets at the end of the the day, regardless of the type of the event, right, that solves a lot of problems. There's a gentleman by the name of John Carlton that has a quote, um, trying to remember this off the top of my head, money solves problems, not having money creates. And it's (laughs) not to say that money is going to solve all of your problems, but if your event is paid for, you know, it's, it's one of these things that I, I ask clients and prospective clients, what would it mean to you and your team if your event was paid for and profitable before a single person walked in the front gate? Wow. Yeah. It's, it's gotta be an amazing position to be in. So to be clear, you're not getting involved in organizing the event. You're not putting the event on. You're brought in by the event organizers, maybe a not-for-profit board, say running an air show. Your job is to drive uh, event attendance, to drive ticket sales. Is that correct? It is, but it also gets interesting with some of our platinum clients. What we find and what you and I have talked about before is you can do a great job of driving demand in advanced ticket sales. But the really interesting part is the marketing that you do then starts to intersect with, let's say it's an annual event, the customer experience. If somebody is really happy about their personal customer experience, that their family and friends had a great time at your event, is it easier or more difficult to sell them a ticket for the next event? So it's interesting though, to, you know, to your point, we don't do the logistical operational stuff. We do have something called a customer experience assessment that when we ask them certain questions, the logistics and operations part of an event is something that the the event organizer or the organization is taking care of. It's that intersection of marketing and customer experience over the long run. has It's a very interesting dynamic, and it's interesting to see how all of that kind of amalgamates together. So, so you're doing a little bit of consulting on the event experience, but it sounds like mainly because that does affect the success of the event over a period of time, not just a one-off. It's to ensure that there's a sustainable momentum that you can tap into year after year. 
Absolutely. And that's the thing. It's the longevity of an event. It's being able to deliver this amazing customer experience. It's knowing that events cycle their customer databases, something that you and I talked about a couple of weeks ago where I'm very much into the data, but I try not to make the data dictate everything. We did an analysis with a couple of verticals within the outdoor event side of the house, and then we found that there was a lot of people that would essentially attend an event once in a five-year period and never return again. And the number of people that were returning, we asked all of our clients just to see what they thought. said, what percentage of people do you think returned to your event? And when we revealed what the actual answer was, their jaws hit the ground. And it was one of those things where you have to go through, um, and I fully realize it. My, My goal isn't to scare my clients. My goal is to say, listen, it's just, it is what it is, but within what would conceivably be at this terrible statistic, there's a massive amount of opportunity for every right. event organizer in the future. What I'm just curious, like if I know this is anecdotal, but what was their sense? So you you knew the answer, you knew it was about five uh was it what was it it wasn't five percent. Was it one in five? Or once every five years? What was the statistic that returned? So kind of a, a quick overview of that is if you have an annual event and they've had an event for the last five years. We asked the questions, we went back to the data, uh, we did first name, last name, and we did email address. And we looked at how many people who purchased tickets for that entire five-year period, and truth be told, right, depending on how you slice up the data, you're gonna get a little bit different answer. Uh, we asked how many people went to all five events. That was the big question. Um, a a repeat loyal customers at the end of the day. So we asked all of the clients and the people who are good enough to to provide us with information. And some of them said 20%, others said 50, others said 80. And the actual number for two distinctly vertical niches within the outdoor event space was less than half a percent. In one in in one vertical, and then less than one percent in the other. In terms so of what, what was their perception? That sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I'm just curious to know, like, what did they assume it was? Because I I'd love to know what the delta is between reality and perception here. So their assumption was, let's say, um, the range anywhere between twenty, fifty to eighty <laughs> percent. Okay, returned every <laughs> single year. Yeah. And that's the thing they, they I have to go through, and, and that's one of the big challenges working with clients is when you're the bearer of this news, it's not my opinion. It's not what Eugene thinks. It's what the data is saying. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it, it's what the customer, right? The customer, they basically go through and they vote with their wallet whether they want to come back. And the, the tough part for me has been bringing conceivably or uh, you know any type of data that somebody might say well that's not very good well i need to find the silver lining in that and for me that's that's kind of become the big challenge you have all this amazing stuff that you can do with data and there's no perfect data sets but now how do we take that client and say it's okay this is actually something that's really really good for you and the good part in that was you know they had this massive customer database and i think Mike, you've heard this before, the cost to acquire a new customer versus re-engage a previous customer. Oh, absolutely. It's massive. And I believe it's Lee Research years ago. They went through and they did a study. If I'm not mistaken, it's 
five times, 5x is the cost to acquire a new customer versus re-engage a previous customer. And that's really what I went back to the clients. I said, this is a huge opportunity. And that's where we look at the marketing they're doing, how they can use direct marketing, direct response to better engage with their previous customers and bring those previous customers back. Have you had success in raising those numbers? Yes, absolutely. And hmm. and some of the channels, um, though primarily digital, we're also looking at kind of the offline space, right? Traditional direct mail, um, going through not as much newspaper and radio, but those are also viable options. When you look at it as a whole, how does an entire integrated marketing campaign work together? The interesting thing about the, the mailbox is some of the most successful online marketers that I know outside of the event space, they're selling products and services around the world. Their little secret place to go is somebody's mailbox, as in snail mailbox. Because huh. as all the companies are jumping online, the mailbox has become empty. I remember the other week, I checked my mail for four days. There was nothing in there. And now all of a sudden, if you have a well-placed advertisement postcard, there's a local ethnic festival here that uses postcards. And it's probably their number one source of getting people to show up to their ethnic festival. And I think it's mm. great. So it's not just digital. It's really understanding the customer where you know where best to, to to go and invest in your placements so it's not just digital and it's not to say you can't use the traditional but being able to go through if you have a customer list and re-engage them bring those people back and it's made a huge difference for customers well i, I love that and i i'm really fascinated by the the data piece I'm, I'm not necessarily a data guy meaning i'm not one to get into the spreadsheets and lose myself for three hours but I really appreciate the power of it because I found just in my own work and my own professional and personal life, I have perceptions of things and then there is the reality of those things and they're often not the same. And as soon as I understand the true reality, I'm actually equipped to do something about it. And we often just kind of work on perceptions. I mean, I, 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 you know, I'm in a similar boat where I sit with a client maybe more on the branding side, not so much on the direct mail or event side. And, I'm, and the client will say, well, our, you know, one of our core values is we're working on their brand is, uh, is uh, teamwork, you know, and, and they're, they're so confident. And then I start getting into the organization and there's a real, like that aspect could be broken, meaning teamwork gets very competitive and cutthroat. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, but it's okay. It's just, it is what it is, but you've got to identify it so you can start to work on it. And I really think that's fantastic that you're looking at that. I, I do appreciate the challenge though. You, you can bring that data point, that truth to, to the table and, and there's a little bit of kill the messenger. You know, we don't appreciate hearing that, but, but what it sounds like you're doing is saying, well, look, I can help you fix it. You're not just putting it on the table. You're saying, look, this is an opportunity and I can help you turn it around. Yeah. And that's the thing at the end of the day, even I was, I was listening, I was like, actually going to ask you if you don't mind the kind of reverse roles a little bit with the teamwork challenge that you had brought up there. Is there a way, right? How do you approach that? If you, if you see with a client, this is something that I'm extremely curious about. You and I have discussed this. Do you have a way that you present, let's say that somebody finds data that is the complete opposite of what they thought, whether it be an event or a business, 
Is there, do you have a recommendation in terms of how best to approach that either with the team or with the client? Sure. Well, first of all, I have to, I have to recognize I have to, you have the unique distinction now, Eugene, of being the first guest to ask me a, a question. I think this is off the top of my head. I'll, uh, <laughs> so I have to, we'll make a little mental note here, but, um, I think in my realm, when I'm working on brand strategy, let's say, or marketing strategy, the question for me is, let's say in that instance of teamwork, okay, let's say teamwork is broken. Can we confidently fix that, uh, you know, in a relatively short period of time? Meaning, if there's something out of integrity within the organization, can we bring it into integrity six months, a year or so? If the answer is yes, then I say, okay, then let's put a, a program together to kind of work on that. If the answer is no, because sometimes you just have to go, look, this just, and this is a little different than what you're dealing with. I'll say, I think team, you know, let's just park teamwork to the side. Uh, You know, I think there's another value that we have to find here. That's part of your makeup. You're saying that you think it's teamwork, but I, I don't think that's the core, you know, element of your brand. So what is that thing? There's a story that we've got to find. So for me, it's really trying to ferret out is there an opportunity to take this and make it into something? Because for branding, it, it has to it has to be true. Like I, I can tell the world all day long that a client is the low price leader if that's their brand, but if they're not, the market is the one that decides if they believe it or not. If the market decides you're not the low cost leader, you're just not the low cost leader. And uh, so for me, it's helping them find the truth. You know, in a situation like you're in where it's it's more of a, a campaign-oriented thing, um, I don't really have an answer for that because that's that's not typically where I'm, I'm – that's not the sandbox I'm playing in as often. I'm usually bringing in someone like you saying, hey, we need to do some direct mail. We need an expert in that area. Strategically, I know we need it, but I'm not the guy to execute. And so let's bring a thinker to the table. Why? That's great. And I appreciate that because I was thinking as you were talking about that, the, you know, finding the truth and how to get the client to find the truth or how to get the organization to find the truth. And is that something that's in alignment? That's, uh, I appreciate that. It gives yeah. me something it, to I mean, think it, about. It can be challenging to your point because the clients are often emotionally, psychologically invested in their version of the truth. We all are. And so if the owner is sitting in the room saying we're all about teamwork because there's some reason for him that that's important, but the organization isn't really aligned around teamwork, that's a tough, that's a tough knot to untangle because that's, that's not just a simple thing like we're out of paper clips. Would somebody please order more? I mean, there's an emotional, psychological, uh, it, it takes a little bit of a soft touch, I think, sometimes. Because you know you're dealing with egos and and I'm walking in. I don't always know the history. I don't know everybody that well. I might have only been working with them for a few weeks, so it's uh, it can be a bit challenging. But anyway, this isn't about. I appreciate you asking, but um, but yeah, that's that. Yeah, and and I, I appreciate the answer. It is definitely one of those things, whether it be an organization and just kind of bring this back to the event space, I hear you loud and clear. And that's one of the the biggest challenges is that sub, you know, being subjective versus objective as an event organizer. And our goal is to try to give event organizers an objective viewpoint. This isn't what Eugene's saying. This is what your customers are saying. This is the, you know, the people who are spending their hard-earned money to come and bring their family to your great event 
And the thing that's interesting is, especially the ones that have been in a, a certain industry or a certain vertical for years, what ends up happening is when you're at your event, you become very myopic. You're focused on very specific tasks, making sure that things are executed, making sure that if it's a beer festival, right, you're you're not running out of beer to give people that the VIP area has enough food and everything else. The interesting part is after an event, if you ask a show organizer, regardless of the type of the, the event, and we actually do this with our clients after the event, we send the same survey that we send out to the customer, we send it to the board of directors and to the executive or to the leadership team. And it's amazing that every single year we send it, even after leadership has read the answers the previous years, the answers are almost diametrically opposed to one another. Why do you think that is? What Because it'd be one thing to say, hey, I've got a client that's a bit problematic. And I know you're not one to complain about your client. So I just, I'm just kind of fictionalizing here. I've got a, a client that's a problem. I mean, everybody, anybody that's in any kind of business, sometimes you have customers that are easy. Sometimes you have some challenging. But what I'm hearing is there's a trend. Why do you think this perception, this trend in perception is so prevalent? Well, it if you're all right with it, Mike, I'm going to push the danger zone in, in trying to answer this question. Are you okay? Go for it. All right. Love it. So politics. Um, let's forget which side of the aisle someone might be on or whether they're even involved in politics. Left, right, center, conservative, liberal, independent. It's all good. But to your question is if you have immutable empirical data that you can present diplomatically with polish and with pose to somebody from a opposing political party. And we see this all the time, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, where you could have literally cold, hard facts, yet the opposing, you know, the opposing viewpoint, they have their life experience, they have their personal, you know, they, their personal emotions that are vested in it. And in spite of all of that, you literally can have the stone cold truth in front of them. And I think that they refuse, you know, an event organizer. I've been doing this for 40 years and nobody's going to tell me any different. A business owner. I started this business. I know everything about it. Nobody's going to tell me how to do advertising and marketing. And the same thing with an event organizer, regardless of the, the data that's presented, even if it's their own customer data, I think that there's this emotional, very defensive response and the kind of wade through that proverbial minefield at the end of the day. That's the challenge. Um, so with politics, right, sure. you can you can have say, listen, this is my position or here's science or here's cold, hard fact. And the person on the on the other side of the aisle says, "No, I don't care what you have. It doesn't matter. It's my you know, it's my position. It's my life." So, I don't know. I don't. I, that's the first time I've ever tried that answer, but it it just kind of jumped in my mind that sometimes it's one of those things where you're, regardless of whatever data you might have, you're not going to change their mind at the end of the day. It's an interesting response, and I and I can't help but think, or I guess ask the question: In your circumstance, are the events typically being run by a for-profit or a not-for-profit entity? Great question. In most instances, with 
all of my platinum clients, they are all, whether they be U.S. or European, they are not-for-profit organizations. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And the reason I asked that is because the, my mind was going to a place of interest being aligned, you know, at least with the business owner and you're, you're absolutely right. And I was kind of saying a similar thing. There might be some other things that influence, you know, I, I started this company knows nobody, no one's going to tell me that I'm wrong or that type of thing, but, but, but really good business people overcome that kind of personal thing and they just want to do a great job. It's not always about getting rich, but they, they want to make money. They want to succeed. They want to grow and they're forcing themselves to overcome maybe some of those hangups that they have. Uh, and this isn't to say that there's anything different about the individuals and not-for-profits, but the not-for-profit organization, you know, is not aligned around profits. So, so profits aren't always primary. I mean, they need them to keep the lights on, but there's a there's sometimes there are other primary drivers that they're trying to accomplish. Now, you're brought in to drive profits. I mean, essentially, it's like, hey, we my job is to make this event successful by by making sure that. I market and we get lots of people in here to attend it. So I'm just wondering if there's a misalignment sometimes. It's it's definitely it's the the, the mindset is a little bit different. My father had a saying because he was really involved with the local Ukrainian American community. And I was as I was younger and trying to observe what was going on, he had he had mentioned it a, a couple of times. It wasn't out of malice, it wasn't out of spite. Sometimes it was out of frustration. That he had a saying that was, you know, essentially went like this. When it comes to not-for-profits, they do these amazing things, but they frequently confuse their tax status with being a responsible and profitable business at the end of the day. Hmm. Because you're a church, right, because you're a scouting organization, because you're a credit union, because you're you're doing this great stuff, some organizations, and I've heard this from clients, and I, I, I try to be very careful. Um, sometimes I just, I don't say anything. I'm a, I put my armor on and, and I have to let them talk, where they say, well, we don't pay for this. And we're never going to pay for this. We don't buy advertising. We don't buy marketing. We get everything on trade. So why should we ever invest in this? Because we're not going to spend money on it. And the interesting thing is part of what we do is a marketing assessment. We dig into their financials. One of our clients that we start started with years ago, they were $50,000, a not-for-profit organization, no reserve. They were one weather forecast away from never having an event again. Oh, yeah. Wow. And it's it's one of those things where there's another uh, similar event in the same vertical that has a massive cash reserve where they could literally have it rain and a horrible weather forecast and they're going to be a-okay for at least one, maybe two years. And that's not, this isn't accounting or legal advice, but that's one of the things there was a, years ago, there was an event out West. They were raising money for, for homeless people on the West coast. And they were doing this amazing stuff. They took a $400,000 bet on a four-time Grammy-winning music artist 
for an outdoor event. And I remember it's almost that, half a million. Yeah. Wow. They came to my website and I remember getting the telephone call. I used to have my, my number readily available and I love talking to event organizers and, and understanding the different challenges they had. They said, Eugene, I've spent all night on your event website. I've reading, I've re- been reading your articles. You're the guy that's going to save our event. It's in 10 days, and we have to sell 4,500 tickets or else we're out of business. <laughs> Gosh. And I sat there, and I, I, I tried to do everything I could t- to help them. And I, I just tried to be honest. And it was gut-wrenching for me because, again, helping the homeless, this very virtuous cause. But I knew that there weren't enough – there wasn't enough time, and I didn't have enough – um, you know, tricks in my bag of tricks to be able to honest to goodness, help them at any level of support. It just wasn't going to happen. So I gave them some suggestions. Fortunately for them, there is a local donor with very big pockets that wrote them a very big check to underwrite everything. And they were a-okay. But it's, you know, it was the $300,000, $400,000 lesson for that organization. Sure. And it was it was definitely one of those things. And, and I'll leave you with this in terms of that example. I found out that the person that was in charge of that organization, they kept on saying this particular artist and they kept going back to the artist. I found out that that was their favorite artist. And they thought that the local community would have as much enjoyment, as much reverence for this artist that they did. And that just wasn't the case. There wasn't the demand there. And the artist, I know who the artist is. They're an amazing artist. But that's that emotional, personal bias, right? That subjectivity of this is the greatest artist ever. Oh, my gosh, we're going to sell all of these tickets. And then when it doesn't happen, potentially putting your entire organization at risk. My guest today is Eugene Loy. He is a world-renowned event profit expert. You can check out Eugene. Go to his website. You can uh, check it out at Eugene Loy, and that's E-U-G-E-N-E-L-O-J. So it's Loy, but it's L-O-J dot com. And he's got a bunch of info there. You can even sign up. I'm on his email list. You get a daily uh, email newsletter. Gives you some great insight on event promotions and marketing. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to dig in a little deeper and uncover what it takes to run a successful event. So we'll be right back. Folks, thanks so much for joining me today on this episode of The Currency. Hopefully you're having as much fun listening as I am interviewing today's guest. We're going to get right back to the show in just a minute, but I want to ask you for two really easy, really quick favors. The first is, if you haven't already, please subscribe. The Currency is delivered weekly, and if you enjoy branding, strategy, marketing, a little bit of entrepreneurship, then this is the show for you. Just go over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, anywhere the five podcasts are provided, and hit that subscribe button. You'll get the currency delivered hot and fresh to your digital device of choice every week. Now, the second thing I'm asking is for you to leave a review. It really helps the show get found. 
Every time someone leaves a review on iTunes or Spotify or any of these platforms, it signals both to the platform and to their audiences that this is a podcast worthy of attention. It helps promote the podcast and it helps potential listeners know if this is something that they should invest their time in. So if you wouldn't mind, take a moment, subscribe and leave a review. It helps me out immensely. Now, let's get back to today's show. And we're back. We're with Eugene Loy. He is an event profit expert, and we're talking about outdoor events, data, uh, failures, successes. This is really fascinating for me. This is a whole world uh, that I have not had exposure to. I've attended events, of course, and as a marketer, I kind of walk around these events and think, my goodness, what has to go into making this happen? Eugene, I want to kind of back up for a second before we move on and, and just maybe wrap up this discussion around data. You were talking about this event where they, the, uh, the head of the organization brought in this really well-known artist, and, and it almost it was almost an existential threat. They almost didn't make it if it weren't for a last-minute donor that underwrote the uh, event. But there was this issue of subjectivity. This person said, hey, I love this artist. And clearly, it's a big artist. Lots of people love it. But the audience wasn't, their target audience wasn't that interested in it, obviously. And then on the other side, we've got data where you've been able to look into data and see what's the reality of how many people return to an event over a five-year period. So I'm sitting here as a marketer and saying, yeah, I love the data. And I'm sure some of my listeners are saying the same thing. But how do you get at it? I mean, we throw data around. People collect all kinds of information. How does, how does one get at the data in a way that's useful and meaningful and can lead to results? Because there's just so much information to sift through. Do you have any advice for marketers to how do they should how they should approach data in these circumstances? I thank you for the fantastic question, and I uh, my response to that is yes. From my own journey, the thing I, I find interesting with data is having literally lost hundreds of my uh, my my hundreds of hours of my life in Google Analytics and just pouring over countless Excel spreadsheets and customer files, what I found is there's just a couple of main things, whether it be an event or a business for-profit or not-for-profit, kind of mainstay data points at the end of the day. And what we do with our Platinum clients, we essentially judge it on you know essentially three main data points and that is how many people came to the website today versus the same time last year in the same sales cycle how many leads did we generate today again looking back previously year to date and how many sales did we generate today and then looking at it retroactively going back to the last time that they had the event and those three key metrics are essentially, um, you know, some people would argue they're superficial or that's overly simplistic, and they are. And they're done that way because they're very easy to understand at the end of the day. They're also, right, if your sales are down, you don't need an MBA in finance to say, hmm, we have a problem here. We're not selling, we're not generating as much revenue at this point as we did last year. What's different? And the goal is to get people to ask very simple questions. The one really key important thing about any data that you use at the end of the day 
is that you want to make sure that the data is accurate because your ability to interpret, to make smart marketing, advertising business decisions is going to be predicated on the, the fidelity, the accuracy of that data. So if you can keep it simple, focus on the simple stuff, I really think that you can do yourself, your organization, a tremendous service at the end of the day. And I'll simply finish up with this point. Um, Having gone through and kind of learned the fundamentals and I am um, versus the quants that are out there that are amazing super geniuses with finance, computer science, and stats, what I've found at the end of the day was simply using Excel, Notepad, and a calculator. And I guess one could argue, well, there's a calculator in Excel. I've found that clients have been able to outperform what some of my colleagues that use some of the most sophisticated marketing advertising systems on planet Earth are doing. Simply by knowing the fundamentals and going to a very tight, very small, accurate data set. That's not to say it's the end-all be-all, but kind of the Pareto, right? 80-20, just focus on that and you really can get 80% of the results at the end of the day. Well, what I'm hearing from you is not that the data has the answer. What I'm hearing is that data will help surface the right questions and the right questions lead to better answers, lead to improvements, lead to innovations. I don't want to put words in your mouth, so push back if you don't agree. But I think sometimes we want to go to the data for the answer. Well, the data has the answer. But what I'm hearing is if, my, if I'm comparing leads today versus same time last year and I notice I'm down, then I, as you say, have to ask the answer, well, what's changed? Or ask the question, what's changed? That is a, it's a great point. And my answer to that is yes, because to your point, and expand on it a little bit, Mike, let me know if I'm representing what you said. Data will tell you when somebody did something and maybe what they did. They visited a website. They opted into an email list. They purchased a ticket. But what data won't provide you, unless you ask the question, to your point is, why did they take that action? So as we start to get in, again, just scratching the surface with the data, we know what people are doing. We know when they're doing it. What we'll do and what we do with our any of our clients is we will send at least a post-event survey and sometimes a pre-event survey. And one of the questions that we ask, because the data gives us that information, what's the biggest reason you didn't purchase a ticket to this year's event? And we let the previous customers, the people on the email list, the people on Facebook answer that because I don't know what the answer is. And the answers are fascinating. So we know, again, the, the first part, and then we asked, to your point, the question and the second part. And it's amazing what you can do with that information. And that equips uh, you or the other members of the marketing team to, to try to fix it. That's that's powerful. Well, this let me take this. I appreciate you sharing this, and this kind of is a springboard into. We've talked a little bit about problems and challenges, and and uh, you know I may have correctly or incorrectly kind of riffed on the nature of, you know, public versus private entities, for profit versus not for profit, um, and that's not data based, right? That was just me subjectively saying, hey, I wonder if this is the issue. But let's talk about a success. I'd like to hear where you've taken this approach. 
and really made a difference for an organization and got some measurable results, I think that would be a, a fascinating case study if you had something you could share with us. Absolutely. And I appreciate the opportunity. We're in the middle of two very large platinum client projects, one in Europe and then one here in the southern United States. And taking and basically going through doing the marketing audit, doing the training, giving clients the tools and knowledge, again, those fundamentals saying, here, look at this data. This is the important stuff. Make sure it's accurate. A couple of weeks ago, we had our European client. They had not had an event in two years. The last time they had their event, it was a 40th anniversary event. And they had the most stellar, amazing lineup you could ever imagine. It was, um, I guess, here stateside, it would be like a Woodstock. Imagine having a Woodstock-type lineup for your event within your respective event niche. It was the who's who. It was unbelievable. And that was in 2017, about two weeks ago, they went and they launched tickets for their 2019 event. They did a lot of counterintuitive things. They actually spent months analyzing the data, doing a a pre and a post customer survey from the last time they had the event. And in the course of two weeks, they actually went through and actually in the course of a couple of days, they had generated more ticket revenue in a couple of days than they did in six or seven months the last time that they were selling tickets. And wow. they're, they're literally, their jaws hit the ground. They had some unbelievable number that would, was absolutely incredible to them. And they don't have the superstar lineup, that Woodstock lineup. This year, they have a fraction of that. But they used the data, they used the system, and they focused on the customer and really gave the customer what they were looking for. And it was unbelievable. I mean, they're, they were beside themselves in the best way possible. So that's a, that's a great position to be in uh, when you're the one, you know, consulting and helping them through this process. Now, I understand you're, you know, you probably work under non-disclosure agreements and you need to protect their, um, the proprietary aspects of their business. But would you, are you able to share some examples of, you know, where, like what changed? So, you know, what specifically did you guys do a little differently this time that, that got that kind of reaction? So I, I absolutely can do that. It was one of those things where, and this is just kind of a, a general statement. I'm, uh, hopefully the listeners can appreciate this. The, um, I have a very clunky phrase, geopolitical socioeconomics. Um, I get that from way back in my political science and international side days. Yeah, yeah. there you go. And what that means um, at a very basic level, and we have that here in heck, even at the local level, is depending where a person resides, their country, the language they speak, there's going to be different cultural values, different, you know, not only different demographics, but different psychographics. And the interesting thing was with the Europeans, their mindset going in as we started to do the coaching and analysis and the marketing audit for them was, and they were very upfront about it, Eugene, that might work in North America, but that's probably not going to work in Europe because we have a different customer. 
And they're correct in that assessment. And what I tried to tell them, and I, I tried to put it in the most diplomatic way possible, is I said, I agree with you 100%. But as long as your customer is human, the intrinsic psychological wants, needs, desires, fears, and frustrations are for the most part, they span cultures, they span the entire globe. So if you get people to really want to do something, that should be the goal, whether it's selling a product or service or an event ticket. And we gave the client the tools and the, here's the best part. And this is actually, they ended up being our MVP client last year. They disagreed with what we recommended, but here's the really important part, back to the kind of the, the first part of our conversation, Mike. They said, we don't believe this, but we're going to try it out. And then whatever happens, if Eugene, what you recommend works out better, that's the direction that we're going to go in. I love it. And it was great because I just had to sit back. And to be fair, the, the deck was da- definitely stacked in my favor over the last 20 years. I also have to be honest, I was scared because, well, it's that one time it's not going to work at the end of the day. And this <laughs> happens to be it. Yeah. But yeah. they absolutely, they they smashed a home run for miles, all things considered. And they were, That's fantastic. They were elated and they're still elated about it today. One of the things that I'm kind of inferring from our discussion, and we've had a few discussions, but in today's discussion especially, you're really focused on results. And I don't know if you bump up against this, but there's there's almost an assumption that there are certain things you just have to do as a marketer. So do you bump up against in a meeting like, well, you know, Eugene, what are we going to do with social media and why aren't we running, uh, you know, branded social media accounts and YouTube videos and... And I guess what I'm really asking is, are you put in a position often to add things on top of what you're doing that don't really get results, but are quote unquote branding versus, look, we're just going to focus on getting butts and seats. And and if you are, what do you do about that? How do you address those pressures to be involved on every platform possible? So to answer the question, yes, this literally came up about, uh, I think, the end of last week with a great West Coast client. They had said to me, uh, we've gone through and they tried to get them to kind of do certain things on social media. They had a board member that said, we want a social media influencer to go through and to try to help promote our event. Now, in my mind, um, I maybe rewind five or 10 years ago, I would probably say, no, let's not do that. I have not seen any data um, minus the fact of maybe they had the fire festival years ago where I think they were paying $250,000 a tweet or an Instagram post. Yeah, that Um, didn't go so well, did it? It didn't. And getting other people, right, the social media influencers, what I, I, instead of saying anything to the client, I said, okay, I tried to take the more diplomatic approach where I sat back and I said, and they were worried. You could tell in the conversation, well, you probably don't want to do this and it probably is not going to work. And I said to myself, and I believed it 100%, and I said it to the client. I said, 
I don't have, I've never worked with an event uh, client directly um, through some ancillary stuff that we've done over in Europe that they've used social media influencers, but I haven't seen kind of the data at the end of the day um, to be able to say, yes, it works or no, it doesn't work. And it's only a one-off at the end of the day. What I said to the client is, you know what, let's roll with this but I have one simple request for you. And it's actually, um, it's built into every single one of our contracts, which is if you're going to do something new like this, we need to track it to a result. Because I have a, a friend of mine, Roman Yako, who's, uh, he helps with all of the modeling and forecasting for a lot of client projects. And he does this amazing job with, with finance and price volume mix and regression analysis and stuff I can't even pretend to, to talk to. But he has one simple phrase, which is this, don't confuse doing with meaningful results. And the way that you see if you're getting meaningful results is you put in a simple you know, a simple way to track, is that working? And the kind of come full circle, Mike, we we're talking about digital. It has never been easier to track something to a result with the tools, the relatively inexpensive tools, using something as simple as a 15 or $20 domain name on a billboard to see if people are actually visiting your website at the end of the day. Now there's a lot more to it than that, right? You can't just stick up a, a domain name, but the tools are there. And that's what I said to the client. I said, hey, you wanna do the social media influencer? If it works, I will be your greatest champion. But the one request I have for you is we have to track it. And they were they were kind of pleasantly surprised with my response. And they were like, yes, because they knew for years, I'm like, you have to track it. You have to track it. You have to track it. And even simple tracking at the end of the day, something as simple as a bit.ly link or a QR code. It's amazing the insight that you can get from that. Sure. And so is the, uh, was the other side of the agreement that I'm willing to do it if we track it, if it's not working, we're going to pull the plug. Was that the kind of the implied uh, other side of the coin? So in that particular instance, it, it is something where I think you've, you're well, well aware of the phrase and we talked about this. You have to choose your battles. And in, in this yeah, particular sure, sure. instance, I, I want this to be successful for the client because I get the chance to learn something. I don't want to become so stuck in, in having a system that's worked so well that I, I don't go through and evolve as we go through because there's going to become a time and place, even with the fundamentals, where what I'm doing simply is not going to work. Look at the chain stores and a lot of the businesses, even here locally in Rochester, New York, that are no longer because they were not able to adapt and overcome quickly enough. So in this particular case with the social media influencer, I am very interested, provided that Again, the tracking is put in place because I want to make sure that I'm not so stuck in my ways that that's having a negative impact on the client. I don't have all the answers. I know very few, th you know, I, 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 there's things that I know, very few of them very well. And as I think I've said to you before, most things I know nothing about and I'm going to be very upfront about it. But I don't want to limit my ability putting on that kind of the Sherlock Holmes hat with marketing always asking the questions, looking around, is there something new to learn? 
That's uh, that's an admirable quality because I think once you develop an expertise in something and once you develop a system that is quite effective, it's easy, I would think, for an individual to kind of be closed-minded to things that are outside that system. I mean, you've, it's like I know how to I know how to mine for gold and and I always produce results. Why would I? Why would I allow anything to kind of dissuade me from that process? So what you're doing is you're still protecting that process and developing, but you're staying open to new ways of doing things so that your process can evolve with the world you're in. So I think that's wise. That's fantastic. I'd be curious to know how that kind of plays out over time. Eugene, what are some of the trends that you see in just outdoor events in general and the way that they're being marketed? I'm thinking more on the on the, on the publicity and public side, the, the things that the consumer sees. Are there some new trends happening? I know beer fests are a big thing. Food truck rodeos are a big thing. There's just lots of fun stuff happening with events. What are some of the things that you're seeing as far as the marketing goes? So interestingly enough, my European client a couple of years ago when I was over in Europe to speak at a marketing conference there and we had kind of one of our first initial sit-down meetings there in Belgium and they said to me, well, you know, we have to compete with Tomorrowland. And I kind of sat there for a second. I'm like, I know there's a Disney movie called Tomorrowland. And if you go to Magic Kingdom, there's, I think there's a Tomorrowland there. I, like, are you talking about Disney? I had to ask. And they looked at me. Again, it's literally right around the corner from them. They're like, you've never heard of Tomorrowland. What Tomorrowland is is a electronic dance music festival. And I encourage everybody that's listening, go on to YouTube and type in Tomorrowland After Movie. And one of the things you're talking about the trends is electronic dance music, right? It's been around since the 80s, maybe even the 70s. Um, I think, Mike, feel free to correct me if I'm incorrect in that. Well, it probably started playing a little bit in the 70s. I think you're right. It's the, it's an 80s thing, isn't it? Yeah. And, and one would assume, well, that's, you know, there's a very um, niche group. But what they did was they took electronic dance music, uh, house music, right, dancing music, and they found a way to create this extraordinary customer experience. And if you go on YouTube and you type in Tomorrowland After Movie, you can see that. I've actually shown it to my clients. And the Belgians said, you know, this is our big competition. So I started to do some homework. And I'm a big firm believer in something called event modeling. Look at what another event is doing and see if you can model their success or decrypt what they're doing at the end of the day. And the interesting thing is with the Belgians and with this Tomorrowland event in terms of the trends, as best I can tell, because they're very tight-lipped about it, they started in 2005, the Tomorrowland event started in Boom, Belgium, which is just south of Antwerp. If you're looking at a map, it's in a a park, and they started with about 10,000 people at their event. 7,000 paid, 3,000 were comp tickets, if you look at the photos. And this year, they have an event that takes place over two weekends. They have anywhere between three to 400,000 people from over 40 or 50 nations. And the way they do it to the best that I could tell, and they, they use this archaic 
internet marketing technology called email marketing. <laughs> they have you go to their website. They created an amazing customer experience. They made it about the customer. They also targeted right the, the millennial generation, younger people where disposable income, we see a lot of data coming out where they don't have as much money um, as previous generations did at that age. The college student loans and all of the other things and the challenges that the world has today. But the tickets, last time I checked, I think it was either 225 euro or 255 euro. And if you want a real kick, if you go on YouTube and you look this up, Tomorrowland, look at the unboxing video. And you have, there's a, a video of a young woman who's literally crying and is having this amazing, very positive emotional response where she said, I signed up to the email list, I got in, and I have not been able to verify this. Um, there's a couple of news articles out there. My understanding is Tomorrowland started in 2005, Electronic Dance Music Festival, and even this past year and the year before, they sold over 200,000 tickets to their event in less than 43 minutes using email. And nobody really talks about email marketing because social media, which is awesome, you know, how do we integrate this all together? But the organizers over there, they figured out the fundamentals of what works. And it's amazing. I can't encourage people enough to just look at some of the videos. And not to say, oh, we're not an electronic dance music festival. But what are the processes? What are their tactics and strategies that they use? And what can you adapt to what you're doing? Eugene, we're kind of running out of time here. I, I guess I want to close by asking, what advice do you have for marketers that want to become better at marketing an event? Not so much as getting brand awareness, but you know, no one's going to be able to develop the skill that you have over the last 20 years that you've been able to develop. But like, what's one thing that you'd say they should focus on if they want to get better at getting event attendance up? Of all the years and kind of trying to think through this, I, I really think, and it's, it's a, a very short answer, but it should give everybody a good start. Focus on creating demand for your event. And it could only be 10 people. And if you have 10 tickets for 10, you know, a 10 person event, you grow from there. So kind of think big, start small, but figure out how to get people to open up their wallet and exchange their hard earned money for what you have to offer. Right? We talked about data. We also talked about asking the customer, you know, why didn't you attend the event? Or what was the biggest reason you attended the event? Or if you're coming to our event, what would make it spectacular for you and your family? And let the customer who's voting with their wallet give you that information so that you can create this massive demand. And really the last thing I want to leave everybody with is you hear about these events. I talked about Tomorrowland and hundreds of thousands of people. Start your event small, manageable. If you want to have an event, it's kind of like an investment, right? You start small or that old cliched saying that goes, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The next best time to plant a tree is today. 
Don't worry about getting too big too quickly. That's what we see a lot of event organizers, even experienced event organizers. We're going to go big. We're going to go as big as we possibly can. They don't have the fundamentals in place. They don't have a reserve account to make sure if the weather forecast, you know, you could work for a year and literally have your event washed away by a bad weather forecast or by bad weather. So I would focus on demand, how to channel that demand that's already there in an existing marketplace and then start with a small event and then slowly scale up from there. And if I had to tell my, my younger self or anybody 20 years ago, I know that sounds overly simplistic, but looking at all of these events, I really think that you focus on demand and scaling your event up and learning and really focusing on the customer experience. I think that you're going to be in a tremendous place at the end of the day. My guest today has been Eugene Loy. I'm sure there is no doubt at this point that he is an event profit expert. I'm so grateful for the things that he shared today. Eugene, thank you for being a part of The Currency. Thank you for sharing your experience joining me today. Um, I learned a ton and I know that the audience did as well. So uh, thank you, Eugene. My pleasure. All the best. Folks, if you want to check Eugene out, and I highly recommend you do, even if you're not involved in event marketing, if you're just in marketing of one sort or another, maybe you serve on a not-for-profit board and your board does events, go to his website, sign up for his newsletter. It comes out daily. It's really packed with information. And I found the info to be uh, transferable, meaning, yeah, I'm not always doing event work, but the wisdom and the experience that he shares is relevant to all kinds of marketing challenges. Just go to Eugene Loy, that's E-U-G-E-N-E. E-L-O-J.com, EugeneLoy.com. And I believe there's a sign up right on his homepage to get on that email list. And uh, I think you'll be glad you did. So folks, if you would like to follow me, do me a favor, go to Twitter. You can find me at Mike Gaston. You can also go to LinkedIn. Just look for Mike Gaston, shoot me a request, and I'll be happy to connect with you. Guys, thanks so much for your time. I love you all, and I will catch you in the next episode.